everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Funny Girl Podcast. I'm very excited this week because I am interviewing the lovely Chris Griggs, who is an actor, improviser, and stand-up comedian, originally from Memphis, who studied improv at Second City, UCB, and The Pit, and currently teaches at The Pit, and also was my first ever teacher when I started doing improv in New York. So I thought, why not try to get him on the pod? Thank you for coming on. No, thank you. I created it. I started it. I lit the match. You did. I'll be that teacher. I'll be like, what? I'll be in some old teacher home somewhere and it'll be, look, she won an award. And I did that. I lit the match. I'll say I'll have a a whole chapter dedicated to you on kind of how you really you got the ball rolling for me. And I think it's, I'm really excited because I think when I've uh, interviewed people in the past, it's either someone who's been on stage and done forms of stand up, done like being in TV shows, managing clients, things like that. So I think it'll be really exciting to have the point of view of someone who has actively been performing and also is teaching because we could all use a little teacher energy in this, in this environment, you know? And I think when a lot of people listen, they're like, Oh, what's he got to say? Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, because I I sometimes struggled with it through the years about, you know, should I teach? <laughs> so I, you know, I I did I never I never set out to teach. I was just going to be, you know, I was just doing stand up and improv and things and there was a guy, his name was Nate Starkey and he is actually in LA now and he and his wife uh, Ashley Ward, they're great uh, married couple and Nate asked me if I wanted to take over an improv drop-in class, which is just this single session class. And I didn't really want to do it, but, you know, I did it. And then I, I liked it and I made a few bucks. And so I just kind of kept doing it. And then I think even with, with improv, it was great because I think mental uh, improv is more of a mental health art form. So I could kind of get behind it. And then I resisted teaching stand-up for a while, for a long time, because I've taught improv for about, maybe 13 years and I've taught intro stand-up for about five and because some stand-up comedians have such a disdain for people that teach stand-up I didn't want to do it for a long time and the pit uh kind of got me to do it like how would you do it and I said well I'll do it if people have never been on stage before so I only teach intro because I feel like that has some that has some karmic value, just trying to help people put together something because open mics are tough and you do that. But I don't want to teach, you know, angry Johnny that his testicle jokes maybe aren't so great. You know, <laughs> angry Johnny's been doing that bit for nine years and it kills in Staten Island. And like, I don't want to I don't want to get into those conversations because people get so precious about, you know, killing their darlings and all that. So, yeah. So now I kind of do both, but it's rare. I still sometimes struggle with the idea of it. Uh, but uh, yeah, hopefully, at least if nothing else, for mental health reasons, I think teaching's good. And- yeah, and I and I think like what we really briefly spoke about, like I initially, when I was seeking out taking an improv class, I was doing it because I was working at a job where I had no creative outlet. And I had, it just felt like I was working a full day going home and just getting ready for the next day. And I really like lost myself in that. And I felt very disconnected from like my potential. And I remember looking at all the different courses and all the different like locations really that was specifically in Manhattan. And they, they have different bios on the pit. And there was like a, an interview that they gave with you and kind of just like to make you feel more connected to the person you'd be working with. And I remember going through a few teachers and then seeing you. And I think I just felt like a very, like I I felt like I knew that there was going to be a very healthy balance of teaching, but also needing to give that tough love. And of course with improv 101, it's not just going to be, it's needing to know those basics because improv can help you in so many ways. Like I've, I've interviewed someone who um, was doing improv for a really long time. And then they were at the ground, working at the Groundlings or like they were a member of the Sunday company and then the main company at Groundlings. And they were saying like, they're like, you can use that in your day-to-day life, like presentational speaking, mental health, self-confidence, and then down the line, like acting, you know, doing standup and things like that. So I was years behind in terms of realizing that I wanted to actually pursue performing. I think I just was more shutting myself out and just like, let me do this for mental health purposes. So 
to be able to do that improv course with you. I met so many amazing people in that class and it's still something that to this day really, and that's why I'm so happy that you agreed to come on the podcast because I think it's really inspiring to people. We're all trying to get to a separate goal. Our, like the mountain's always moving. The goals are always changing and shifting. And I think it's really empowering to be able to teach people because you have no idea what the potential could be down the line. Or like we joked about the fact that I'll write a chapter about you in my book. Or if you, like if something crazy huge blows up for you in the next six months or a year, a few years, it's like you look back on those really wholesome moments because I really, really needed improv. And it sounds dramatic to say it saved my life, but I was in such a depressed place and to have a community of people and just being close with everyone like made me feel like I really looked forward. That's the only class in my whole life that could be three hours that went by like it was like 30 minutes. Like any other class, I was like, I cannot do this. (laughs) I think it's, you know, I think it's just connecting, you know, like I usually like the worst thing that happens if you take an improv class is if um, you make a friend and and maybe you develop an alcohol problem. But other, I mean, those are really (laughs) about the only... It's about the only two things that, that happen. And yeah, I agree with you. Like I just took, I just started, I was working at an ad agency. I've been in New York now 20 years. And I was working at an ad agency writing commercials and stuff. And I uh, was kind of always somewhat obsessed with Second City. And uh, they had a Second City program in New York at the time. And they're bringing it back, I understand, uh, in the next year, which is kind of exciting. And, uh, but I had no intention of performing. So I was just... Uh, studying improv because I knew that people in the early, you know, SNL, a lot of people had done improv. And so I liked it. And I made friends and like two of my closest friends now are from that first, you know, intro level of stand up. And I didn't realize though, that this idea of like something that's a self-actualization of self, where you sort of learn how to say yes to people from all walks of life, you have to, you have to practice active listening. You have to learn how to be able to do a rant or to be able to be concise. You have to be comfortable with silence. And all of that started making me a better person. And I didn't know that that was going to be a side effect, you know, because all of a sudden I found myself doing things that were not innately me because I had to trick my first year. I took a lot of yoga, started reading books on Taoism. I used to carry a rubber band on stage and I would snap it. I had a fidget ring. And all of that was just so that I would be in the present and stop judging everything so that I could stop thinking and say yes to people. And then by doing that, you know, it's sort of like you're doing therapy without doing therapy on a certain level. Literally. And then the other side benefit that I never really anticipated was I didn't really get into improv thinking I would ever be an actor. And then suddenly, um, after a few years, people were, oh, I wrote a play. Would you like to be in it? You remind me of something. Or I started doing plays. And then later on, I started doing stand up. Um, and then all of a sudden, Oh, I can act. That's weird. So, you know, because it's just self-actualization of you. And it's almost like soap opera training because you just played, especially with comedic acting, you've sort of played all these variations of your true self. I'm a dad. I'm a killer. I'm a cat. So what would all that look like? And then by the time you actually get in front of a camera, you feel comfortable because you've done it. You've kind of put in your 10,000 hours and all these all these variations of stuff. So I feel like there's a lot of side. It's a lot of, you know, you get mental health, but it's also, it's a very practical skill for as a person, for your job, you know, for whatever. And it's, it's funny that you mentioned this earlier because there's a few, there's one or two people that um, are like primarily stand up comics. And I joked and asked them about like taking classes and stuff. And one of them was like, Oh God, that that seems so ridiculous to me to take a stand-up course. And it's basically just teaching you how to be yourself on a stage. And I think there's just two sides to that. Like I think people need to figure out that stage presence. I think it's a way to workshop and help you figure out your five minutes, your 20 minutes, your 30 minutes. And I've always like gone back and forth on taking like a stand-up class, but I think like across the board, improv has been something that like, I don't, I mean, no one will regret taking a stand-up course, but no one really would regret taking an improv class. Like you were joking, like the worst thing that could happen is you make a friend, like in a, in a weird way, taking that course with you made me realize how 
a lot of things about me that were bigger than just performing. Like I realized that I had like kind of control issues and I realized that I was having some anxiety issues. Like I remember I was, there was one class where you pulled me aside at the end and you were like, you are so focused on trying to direct the scene instead of just like, yes, like saying yes and feeding off your partner. And it really stuck with me to this day because it's like being able to let go and over the less overthinking and the more able that I was to let go, the better the flow was and the better I was as a, as a scene partner. And I think that that also adapts in other aspects of life, just kind of like what you were saying. So it is interesting to see that because now that I'm starting to do stand up a little bit more, I think like I need to continue to do, take any form of classes because you can always be better and you can always get better. And the fact that it can better me as like Lorena and also better me as hopefully like a performer and entertainer, you know? And I think like a lot of people get lost in that a little bit. Um, and I know earlier you were talking about how you, you know, have been in New York for 20 years and everything like that. Just for all of the listeners getting the whole spiel of your background, do you want, do you mind just giving us kind of a rundown? I know you are originally from Memphis, but when did you know that you wanted to start performing? Like what was New York like? Like what was it like doing Second City or UCB or the pit? And then like what led you into teaching? Um, yeah, well, I, I was, um, I was born in a, I was born in Memphis and then, um, my parents got divorced when I was young. And so I kind of wound up, uh, uh, the short version is I was, my father was going to be the person that was, I have a twin sister, Chris and Christy. So, you know, that's that thing. And, um, but his, his, uh, sister had had a miscarriage and so she couldn't have kids. So she wound up raising us with her husband, my aunt and uncle outside of Memphis on a farm, really. And I never, I don't, I was always, I think I was voted like funniest in high school. And even in college, I was funniest, but I didn't have the courage to do it. I never had the courage. And I always had this weird thing where I was sort of, you know, like, it, I, the bully wouldn't mess with me because they would be afraid that I might launch into them a little bit, you know, like comedically or whatever. I'd write a song about them. And so people would not mess with me. And I found that as a way to keep because I was getting bullied a lot in high school. And that that I was never cool, but that was my one way of keeping people at bay. So I definitely was always working on the skill and I would always do impressions and I was always trying to be funny. But I, I didn't have I never thought that I would ever have a career in anything. And then. Um, I went to a Southern Baptist college in, in Jackson, Tennessee, which weirdly enough, I'm going to headline there in June and I, it'll be interesting to go back and offend all of the people that still live there from my college <laughs> days. Uh, but it was a safe move. You know, Jackson was not that far from where my aunt and uncle lived, but it was far enough to be away. And then it was interesting. Even in college, I dated a girl that spoke several languages. And she was a prodigy. She could play the piano without being able to read music. And she sang and she got a record deal. And so I was always around artistic people, but I never just fear, you know, fear really. Uh, I don't know. It is sometimes a Southern thing where you just stay within your echo chamber and moving is tough. Right. And then eventually I worked in advertising and the agency got sold. So they wanted me. It was kind of like, Chris, you either have to come to Cincinnati or we're going to lay you off. And I decided to go to Cincinnati and I was dreading it the whole time. But for some reason, like the second the plane landed, I felt free, like for the first time, like, oh, I could be anybody. And then I decided I wanted to get to New York. I still didn't care about performing, but I, I was going to get to New York no matter what. So I just kind of navigated that through advertising. And when I came to New York, I was working in advertising and Second City was here. And as soon as the plane land, I think I, I signed up for classes and just fell in love with it. I, I had wonderful uh, teachers. A few of my teachers, they're, they're in sort of a, a somewhat legendary improv experimental group in New York called Centralia. Uh, Jack McBrayer was one of my teachers um, from, you know, 30 Rock and, and all that jazz. But uh, and Jack was fascinating because he, he didn't want to teach. I think I might have been the last class that Jack ever taught. Mm. But his idea of simplistic fun. You know, like no matter what you did, you could say, hey, man, I hate you. I know my grandmama tells me, Jack, you've got to be nicer. You just have to try. So his like his very distilled yes and which he's also kind of like in real life. He's just a very yes, affirmative person. Um, I found that really was revelatory for me. 
And so I, and then I found friends and I found all of a sudden we had an indie group and we're performing at bars. And it was interesting because we are my first group. There was this one Irish guy named Walter that we were all fascinated by because he didn't talk a lot, but when he got on stage, he was crazy funny. And I was fascinated by that. And so we developed, we started an indie group called all things Walter and we would just do Walter stuff. And the whole thing was about making Walter look good on stage and we would crush. And I didn't realize that we just had group mind. I didn't realize that, Oh, I would be on so many teams that stunk down the road, but that that was cool. Uh, so that was it. I just did improv. I was going to just keep doing advertising because I found like many people, all of a sudden I was getting promotions and people were really noticing improv was having an effect on me at work. And, uh, and I was working on the U S military. And, uh, I remember I was supposed to be at the Pentagon the day after nine 11. So it, it's not like I quit my job because of that. Cause I didn't, I stayed on my job, but there, I think my brain chemistry changed after that. And I just realized like, I don't have a wife. I don't have a kid, you know, like, what am I doing? Like, I just want to be the fun guy at the old folks home and have stories Um, because New York will give you practical experience and that sort of thing. So I don't know. So then I started to I took a stand up class um, at Stand Up New York and loved it. And I just started doing stand up. So I've been doing stand up for probably about 16 years. I've probably been doing improv for about 20 because I probably started the second that I, I did. Um, I auditioned for like a second CD review showcase in New York and got in. And that was pretty cool because like Casey Wilson was in our cast and she went on to get on SNL. And um, there's a wonderful standup named Cesar Gracia, who's very big in Miami that uh, was in the group. And we had a great time. So I don't know. I just found I was happy, you know, so I realized like I thought it, I wasn't unhappy before, but I just was sort of like, oh, this is what happy happy is. And I like, and, and you know, I'm probably not like everyone else, even though I do stand up and improv, I don't think they're the same skill set. So I think there's some things that pass over between the two skill sets. But I think when you do stand up, you're very, it's very much Darwinism. Like George Carlin said, it's a socially acceptable form of aggression. And when I'm doing improv, it's collaborative, it's group mind, we're working together. So There is some crossover, I'm sure, eventually. Like, I'm pretty good at crowd work, and I'm sure part of that is improv. But I think you people have to realize they're they're left brain, right brain, I think. Um, Kind of like short form and long form to me. I do short form, you know, um, I've done it, but I still feel like I'm using more of my stand-up brain when I do short form, like be funny fast. And then long form, it's more discovery and just finding things that kind of present themselves on stage. Do you feel like you gravitate, and I know you like briefly touched upon this, but do you feel like you're, you gravitate more? Like if you had to kind of pick one, I know it's a bit ridiculous, but if you had to pick one, would you, do you think that you like improv more or do you like stand up more? Well, I mean, if I only, people ask me that because, um, but it, I always have the same, I've had the same answer forever. It's, I would do stand up if I only had one, if I had to do one, I would just do stand up. I love stand up, I, but I also recognize that, I mean, improv has had like a really strong effect on my mental health and, mm-hmm. and it keeps me sharp as an actor. So like, if I don't, if I audition, I don't get super anxiety. I don't have a lot of anxiety because I'm very much like, I think Brian Cranston wrote this in his autobiography. Like he started looking at auditions, like just a gig or like a thing where you perform in front of a few people and I'm always performing in front of a small crowd. <laughs> so I do, I do shows, you know, all the time, I'll, you know, and sometimes they're big crowds and sometimes they're small, but I don't, um, you know, luckily I don't really have to give up one or the other, but like if for some reason, let's say if, if something hit big, like that's the crazy, the crazy world that we live in now is that if I'm the chief forensic analyst on the next CSI Alabama, then I I would probably have to drop improv because I would be touring the country because just that getting a TV gig would suddenly propel my stand-up career through right. the roof much more so than any skill set that I would bring to the table. So that's what's interesting about now. But I would do stand-up. I really love it. Uh, although, you know, like if I look at my reel for acting, 
I mean, at least half of it is something where the director or someone said, that's cool. You did the script now, you know, like, why don't you do one for you or let's do that. And then that becomes the thing. And this whole uh, being able to improvise on camera, it's only going to get more prevalent. So I think stand-ups and actors and everybody else, I mean, the world's changing. So it kind of has gone from people, you know, busting me up about taking improv class to now suddenly like, hey, Chris, I want to, how do I get into this UCB or what are the pit or like, I want to do something, you know, and because they're managers and people want them to be good actors and they can't be in plays. They don't have time for all that, you know, and, and even taking classes, it's really expensive. And yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, it's great to be able to, um, to be able to, you know, take acting classes, but I mean, it costs money and all that stuff. And, and I've never met a great improviser that can't act, you know, but I've met great actors that can't improvise. So yeah, it, it's not going to hurt anything. I mean, Steve Carell's a great actor. Uh, Will Smith, it's a, he's a good actor. Bill Murray's a good actor. And, and, but uh, there's a lot of stand-up comedians. And I think that's changing as well. I think when I started, I think most stand-up comedians were probably not good actors. And, and the people that we now say are good actors, they spend a lot of time being bad to get good. It's not like naturally like Kristen Wiig is a good actor or Bill Hader is a good actor. And I, I don't know this because I've never asked them <laughs> this, but I would assume part of that is because of their improvisational training. Right. And it's like, and I think it kind of what you had said earlier, it's also about like the seasons of life as, as like cliche as that sounds. It's like, it's a building block that you need to get you to the next level. So like being so good at improv and being quick on your feet and kind of being supportive to somebody else can then down the line, make you a better actor or team player, things like that. Versus I think stand up has a very, there's crossover in the two, but I, I think for me, like I started improv years ago and then I took a pause for a little bit and then now I'm trying to get back into it. Cause I think like, honestly, at the end of the day, it's really, really good for mental health and it's really, really good for staying quick on your feet. And it goes back to like the fact that it'll help potentially with acting doing like, even what you said about how you're really good with crowd work, like that must have something to do with your <clears throat> capabilities to just be quick. And in, in the fact that you've done improv for as long as you like have, it's probably kind of like almost like a, a, an easy knowledge, like knowledgeable thing that you're like, yeah, this is just like second nature to me now. You know what I mean? So, well, I do, I do come at it from a place of celebrating people if I can, you know, until it's kind of like, there's this old movie Patrick Swayze did called Roadhouse that I think that they're, they're going to do a reboot of if I read the trades correctly, but it's, you know, be nice until it's time not to be nice. So if I am doing crowd work or if I'm talking to people, it always comes from a place of inspiration over me inventing, or it always comes from a place of me being curious as opposed to getting out of a jam on stage. And it comes from a place of like, there's a, there's a thing in improv, they say like, you know, a uh, poet or genius, treat your scene partner like a poet or a genius. I genuinely am probably looking at them in the beginning, like from a poet or a genius or like, that's fascinating. Even if it's as silly as their mustache, I don't know. But it does come from a place of curiosity. And then if they're, you know, if the crowd's rowdy or if I have somebody messing up the show, then I also do have that ability like any professional stand-up does to just make someone go home and cry at night and then totally shut them down. Because that mirror works both ways. You know, that mirror that celebrates people can also be the mirror. It just means you see things. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it can be, you can use your powers for good or evil. And I think improv constantly kind of pushes me toward trying to use it for good as much as possible. Because I struggled with, oh, I so was, I'm still, I love, I love stand-up so much, but there is, you know, it is an, it's an aggressive, angry art form to some degree or, you know, or to no degree. It's just that it is an aggressive art form. And I don't I didn't want to be angry all the time. So sometimes, when, you know, my first three or four or five years, I would do a set that would go so well, but I would be angry because I was angry. And that's the way I got it done on stage. And I, I think somehow I, I started to find ways to navigate that. Where, like, I'd say at least for the last six or seven years, my stage vibe is aggressive. It's super aggressive, but it's not angry. And, right. it, and it took me a while to find that frequency, you know, like a Jim Gaffigan frequency where he's like, you know, 
I don't know. And then he does the voice where the audience is like, he's pale. I don't like what is he's going to he's going to have a heart attack. And then it's still aggressive, but it's fun, you know, and it's, uh, you know, Lewis Black yells a lot, but I don't think he's I mean, I don't know. I've never asked him, but he doesn't seem angry. <laughs> it seems it seems fun, you know. So I, I took me a while to find that. And I think sometimes maybe improv sort of helped that in acting, really. I mean, you also have to work with people as an actor. And I, I found I really, you know, I like that drug of, you know, you you should always do the scripts and you should always do it the way that someone wrote it. You should always do it the way the director wanted. And I've been on plenty of sets where I've never changed a thing because that's the vibe. Nobody's right. wanting it. But I've also been on things where mm, the script's not all that great. It's kind of a horror film. It's 1 a.m. Nobody's got nothing. And they're OK with that. You know, so you can do things and improvise. And and I do, it is kind of, it reminds me a little bit of stand-up, just that drug of, you know, here's all these people watching you with a red light on and can you come up with magic? I've always been fascinated by that trick because when I went through Upright Citizens Brigade, um, one of my teachers was Matt Walsh. And what was fast, well, two things are interesting to me about this. One is that Matt was great, fascinating. He's a great teacher. But shortly after that, I'm going to say three or four months later, I got cast in an indie film um, called, I think it's called May the Best Man Win or something like that. And uh, all my, my, my stuff got cut out, <laughs> but I was, I was in a few scenes where it was, uh, I was a, like a, an extra and I was drink, a drunkard. And so anyway, so Matt Walsh and I won, I think it was Rob Hubel, but anyway, they were in this scene and I'm just playing like, Ugh, I'm just playing the drunk guy laying back. I'm not doing anything. And they're having this really in-depth conversation you know, like when you've had a few and it's a bachelor party thing and uh, they did the script and then the director said, why don't you improvise one? And Rob and Matt improvised this thing that to this day, it's like, I still think, oh, because it was so good and it was so good. And then the director like flipped it on them where they sort of changed like, hey, you were happy in that one. Why don't you be sad? And you do a thing and you tell the story instead of and it was great. And so I was like very, how did you do that? Like, how do you, and they, you know, how do you do that with such calmness and, and killing it? Um, so, yeah, I got really fascinated by how people do that. And if, when I work with actors, particularly, um, because sometimes the acting is so bad in improv, basically, because all of a sudden people think that they have to go, yeah, that's right. We got to fix the screwdriver factory and make more screwdrivers. And we're horrible. And I'll do a thing where, you know, I'll have actors sometimes bring in like a monologue that they would audition with or something that they're very comfortable with. And they just do the written monologue. And then I say, OK, let's play that same character nine years later and put him in a different context. And I make them improvise a monologue. And they're great because they know the character. Right. And it's all those choices of just making a character because, you know, actors take a script and then they learn it to forget it. Because actors want to put themselves in an improvised state. I know the lines. I know who I am. I know exactly what's going on. I know what I want. I know what my actor motivation is. So now I'm free to react. Acting's reacting. To be and not think. And there was this line. Tim Oliphant said something on a podcast that stuck with me, which was, if I remember what I did in the scene, I know it probably is not that good. You know, like, oh, yeah. Because you would just be. And, um. Uh, Hope I'm not butchering that quote, uh, Tim. It's like the authenticity part of it, though. It's like you. It's like the natural. You, like it's when someone performs, whether it's a monologue or a script. You can tell even stand up. Honestly, like when I, I've been going to a lot of open mics, and I've noticed with myself, and everyone has a different style, of course. But for me, when I'm kind of performing or think, I try to do it from like a storytelling perspective. I'll have bullets with a few parts to remember of the story, but I don't like to write it out because whenever I write out even like a few sentences or elements of a joke I'm trying to tell, or even like the punchline, it's like, I think you're supposed to kind of just feel that. And again, everyone's different, but I think like sure. my personal experience, it's like the more that I try to flesh it out or write it or be like, this is when they might laugh. And if not keep going, I feel like I sound robotic and I don't feel like it flows as naturally as if I was maybe in like an improv class or taking like a stand-up class when you can kind of 
just go and perform and then look back on it and be like, okay, like how, how natural and authentic did that feel? Because when you're on stage feeling uncomfortable, they can see that too. Like the audience can kind of read that too. And I bet the same is for auditioning and filming and, you know, acting in general. It's a, it's such a tricky, that is such a tricky divide because on the one hand, there are, there are anomalies, you know, like there is an anomaly. Like I didn't even realize I was listening to a Louis, Louis CK on a podcast a while back. And, and he was saying that he doesn't write anything on stage and he's like considered one of the better writers ever really. I mean, comedically. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised. And then there's people like Mark Marin that sort of do the same thing, but I feel like they're anomalies. I don't, yeah. I think you, I think people have to write. And I had the same problem when I started. Um, I, if I was just riffing, I sounded good. But if I was doing the writ, cause I would write my jokes out word for word. I sounded a little bit artificial and, but, and so the danger is though, is that most people can't, they're not anomalies. They can't just keep ripping their way through because they haven't got the skill set yet to be able to consistently duplicate the edit and to be able to consistently duplicate exactly what's the main points of that joke. So uh, I used to, um, because I kind of had already done improv for a few years, I would write the joke out, then I would improvise the joke, then I would transcribe the joke. Then I started to sound like me. So that worked. that worked for me and then over time, your editing skills get better as an improviser on stage and also as a stand-up. So now I bullet point jokes. But I think your setup and your punchlines should be pretty consistent, really the same. Otherwise, you start trying to – you get into this place about, I don't get it. Why does it not work here and this and that and sort of – you know, there's nothing better when, than when you have that joke that you know you could drop me out of an airplane and I could go into a Starbucks and I could do five minutes with these this, these jokes. That always feels great. And I think to get that, you kind of have to write. I also think, you know, um, like if you really think about, especially I guess I have a weird perspective because I've taught both for a while. How many people can do improv and stand up at a professional level? It's not that many. And a lot of people go into it being able to to try to do both. And sometimes it's because people quit. You know, like um, one of the best improvisers I've still ever seen, at least in my experience, is a guy, Kurt Brownholer, who is a pretty successful comic and has written for films and, you know, been in movies and stuff like that. But he just stopped kind of doing improv when he started getting successful as an actor. Um I don't know if Kristen Shaw still does improv, but she was a wonderful improviser and a, and a very good stand-up comedian as well. And so you don't really see people that sort of do kind of a, like a Mike Birbiglia who can kind of do everything. He can kind of do stand-up storytelling, write a one-person show, write a movie that he's in, and also do a one-person show at Lincoln Center. I mean, you know, we hate these kind of people. Because, no, I'm just kidding. Like, you know, because they can... <laughs> They kind of effortlessly can do multiple things, but as someone that's sort of especially I've watched Mike before, I do feel he doesn't approach everything the same way, or at least it doesn't feel like that to me as an audience member. And I think that's the thing when people think everything is the same. Like, I don't think sketch writing is stand-up. I don't think stand-up is long-form improv. I don't think long-form improv is short-form improv. I don't think storytelling is stand-up, although there are anomalies. There are people you know, that have that skill set, like, like, you know, Tig, uh, Nataro, who can just sort of effortlessly go in and out of storytelling and stand up or a joke, you know, and I, I don't think everybody has that skill set. And the danger when you start early in stand up for me is that if you drift into too much of an improvised place or too much of a storytelling place, and you cannot be able to duplicate it and narrative almost by definition can release you of actually having to write something funny because you're leaning in on narrative. So you never actually have to write a punchline and there's nothing worse than watching a standup do a story that doesn't have any, it doesn't hit hard. Like every, you know, you still have that same clock every, Oh, wait a minute. Has it been 45 seconds and nothing funny's happened? You still have that same thing. But then by the same token, I've seen standups try to do like storytelling shows and it's horrible because they're not real. It's just like, Joke, 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 joke. 
And then you yeah. see people like Afira Eisenberg that can just do both effortlessly. And, you know, that's always the trick. We all want to think we're the anomaly, but maybe we're not. Mathematically, very few of us are anomalies. So when you start out doing something, you just want to make sure that you're not going down a real time-wasting path trying to do it trickier than it has to be because at the base level, everyone should be able to write a joke. So I get everybody, you know, nobody wants to have to learn the chords on a piano. Everybody wants to play jazz. But, you know, those chords are important on some level. Yeah, no, that's that's really, really well said and like a good angle to look at it. I think people maybe focus on the anomalies the most. And at the end of the day, it's like you kind of just have to take it step by step and not jump ahead and think that it's going to work out for you. And I think like, yeah, for me, it's just like trial and error at the end of the day, right? It's like I, I like maybe it's worked for a few open mics and other ones. It's like, geez, I've just bombed. But it's funny. It's kind of like a, it's a bit of a balance because you have people who go the storytelling route, but they don't think about the fact that there needs to be those punchlines. And then you have people that are just like riffing off one-liners, hoping like at least a few of them will stick and some of them will be funny. And I think the way that I work like with my ADHD overthinking brain is <laughs> I do <laughs> I do better with kind of that aspect of storytelling and then hope that there are those punchlines and read the room and hope that like I can kind of navigate in the moment where like the improv brain comes in where it's like, okay, maybe this isn't, this isn't working for this audience. What if I dip into another maybe joke or category or story or one liner where I know a lot of people, it can get you in trouble to a degree. It's kind of what your, what your like point of view on is, is in that by thinking that you are like the one of a kind person. Yeah. And, and there are one of a kind people, but you know, I mean, there, yeah. I mean, Zach Galifianakis can play the piano and do one-liners, but that's not maybe the way I would suggest everybody, you know, maybe that's not the way I'd say to everybody start that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, ultimately that, you know, it's funny. I love, I teach improv. I love it. I think it helps everybody. It's a good mental health art form. It helps people with ADHD. It helps people with post-traumatic uh, stress disorder. You know, it helps people that have control issues. It helps people with anger management issues. So I feel good about it. I don't, you know, I teach stand-up, but really like who cares? I don't disagree with stand-ups that ultimately, if you're really going to make it, it's all going to be trial and error. And it's all going to be just putting your nose to the grindstone. The only thing I would ever, like a teacher is ever going to do, and I think probably when you start out, is give you some basic foundational structure about historically, these are ways to write jokes. These are different ways to look at setups. But ultimately, you're going to do your own thing. Like I don't do... I don't do like a conventional joke structure anymore in my act. I do kind of what you're talking about where I'll write things in bullet points. <clears throat> and then as I keep doing them on stage, they just become a diamond. And then you put them in your pocket and you move on. Or if, and I've also started doing storytelling shows in New York about five or six years ago. And nothing in my storytelling act so far has made it much to my chagrin. Um, and nothing, none of my stories have made it. But when I, I do have things that people think are stories and they kind of are, except at least my process for stories is more, I won't let myself move on to the next part of the story until I've, I've, I have to nail down the funny thing. So it's going to be, hey, this kid came up to me and said blank. Okay, here's something funny about that. Oh, and so then me and the kid did this. Okay, then you got to write that. And so I try to even work things out on stage in pieces, knowing that I'm going to put them together eventually. Although, whatever, I know plenty of comedians that just get up and tell a story and, and they can hear it. But see, that's the deal. Like, or to me, it's like the talent. I read this article once called Nobody Writes a Great First Screenplay. And part of it was, you know, like me included, I wrote a couple pilots in the last few years and my first one stunk because I didn't build in enough ingrained conflict because of this, you know, like all this yes and stuff in my brain. And I had to rewrite it over and over. But it, the article was just saying that, you know, talent is basically your filter. You know, like Ray Charles has said, you know, I've written more bad songs than good. But Ray Charles knows what a great song sounds like. And I think comedians, part of it is we're working it out. We're working it out. But there's something in your head where you sort of ultimately know when to hold on to something, when to let it go, when something's got potential, even though it's bombing. There's something there and you sort of hear it. And then you're like, ah, yeah, that's it. And sometimes it's about affirmation from the audience, but I think any comedian 
at least speaking for myself, like I've had jokes that there was no mathematical reason for me to keep doing them because audiences did not want me to talk about this. Right. So, you know, like, <laughs> like, why am I doing this? You know, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, there's something there. There's something there. And you just keep walking into the wall until all of a sudden it opens up. And then sometimes, you know, you write a joke in a day and it's like one of the best jokes in your act. And you're like, I don't know where that came from, but that's cool. Right. That was great. Wow. That's so interesting. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think we kind of briefly touched upon this, but something I did want to ask you just in terms of, I know we kind of were ping ponging back and forth in terms of like stand up and improv, long form, short form, and then also, um, storytelling and kind of like what different people's recipes that do or don't work for them are for people that are trying to get back into taking classes, whether that's an improv class or virtual class, a stand-up class. Like obviously there's a lot in LA. They have like Groundlings, UCB out here, things like that. And then in New York, they have like the pit, you know, you were saying like, obviously there used to be second city. I think you said they're bringing it back potentially and all those things. Like what is kind of advice that you have for people that want to, who either have never taken a class before and want to take a class or people that haven't in a, in a while and are trying to get back into it. Cause I think also selfishly, like I am trying to get back into improv courses and I keep going wavering back and forth on standup. Um, and I think there's like a level of intimidation and fear that kind of locks in earlier on. And it's like just what you would recommend to people from like a teacher's point of view and performer. Um, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily think classes are for everybody. I know plenty of people have never taken classes and, and you just, you work it out by doing it and there's, you know, experience in doing it. It's best teacher with improv or that's with stand up. I don't feel like you have to take a stand up class to be a stand up comedian, but, um, I do feel like there are advantages of like a peer group and having a, an expectation for a show and all that stuff. Um, for improv, what I would generally tell people and this is all subjective, but I find a class that is very foundational in the beginning. Find a find a program that's very foundational in the beginning, um, so that if you're you know if you really kind of look at an institution of learning for improv or even acting, really. But I'm going to stick with improv because right. I probably know more about what I'm talking about. Um, a self-actualization of you learning how to say yes to people from all walks of life, I feel like is a very good foundational skill to work on that's going to help you when you start getting into more technique-based uh, education classes or when you start getting into forms that have a very specific end game in mind. So I was very happy that I went through Second City in the beginning because I felt like partially because of their curriculum, but partially because of the teachers that I was lucky enough to have, they were all very human. And there was an aspect to everybody that I studied with that, you know, it's that old Meg Ryan, I'll have what she's having, or that woman where she's like, I'll have what she's having when Meg Ryan's faking the orgasm in that movie, you know, like whatever it is that they're doing, they, there's a happiness with them that doesn't feel cult-like. It just feels like, oh, I can keep bringing this certain truth of art to stage. And and that's sort of what I think I look I would look for in the beginning, like ask people that have taken classes, look at the curriculum, because some I think, you know, all the programs are valuable, but some of them are going to be a more technique based where I'm going to be learning. You're going to learn how to do this. Some improv programs are very much designed specifically to be funny. And I love to get me some laughs on a stage, but I don't know that that's particularly my objective in the beginning. In the beginning, I think you want to take a class that makes you feel like you're slowly starting to bring your best self to others. And you're slowly learning how to follow the fear of right. presenting yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's what I would look for in classes, no matter what, really, whether it's acting based or you're just trying. I mean, the nice thing in the beginning, at least with improv classes, is it doesn't really matter if you're getting into it for acting or just because I'm bored at home. The, right. the, the approach is the same because, you know, so, I mean, sometimes actors are the most scared of improv because or, or I'm saying acting students because um, they people tell them, here's what you say. Here's how you feel. Here's how you dress. Here's where you stand. Here's what you do. And then suddenly somebody like me goes. I don't know. You, you figure it out. You do it. You react, you decide. And so 
there's a there's a really strong element of self-love involved and self like oh i i'm enough but i think what's funny is it starts as kind of a nice bit of therapy but it also eventually will become darwinism because i'm not i will certainly take direction but i'm not doubting myself that i'm able to deliver if you cast me in certain places where i feel like you know okay i can see why you cast me in this role I don't have some huge self-doubt about my ability to deliver certain versions of that type of person because right. I've done it a lot. And I've had a lot of, you know, audiences also act as focus groups and you've gotten a lot of affirmation from audiences. So I also think there is a Darwinism to that where you can sort of be confident in a real way, like not just like, I, you know, I'm a, you're, you're an arrogant blowhard, but like just somebody that's like, ah, I've done it, Yeah, you know? It gives you that like assurance maybe and confidence to, and it's just like getting more tools. Like I think like, you know, it's kind of like what you said. It's like similar to like going to the gym or something, you know, like you never walk out and you're like, oh, I hate that I did that. Like you always go into it and you have like experiences or knowledge and like you're, you might have to unlearn something that might've worked for you, or you might have to apply a different form of like method or, you know, like concepts that are not very natural. And I think that that is really carries a lot of weight as someone, you know, for me even who's, I felt, I, I weirdly feel more of a safety and comfort in a place like improv. And years before that I was doing like very small, like I took like an acting class, um, in college, but it was really just for fun. It was just to kind of, again, mental health thing, just get my mind off of it. But then going from something where it's so much about like structure and writing and creating and feeling yourself being that character. And then going into a place like improv where you were just like, you're, you're, you're putting too much control onto this. Like it's not going to help you. It made me find that balance for myself that I might've thought was at the time, like a strength when instead it was really just a different angle and a different way of approaching something. You know what I mean? So I think like, there's no, there's no wrong answer and there's no like class that you would regret taking. You always take something away from it, whether it's improv, stand up, an acting class, a music class, things like that. You're always, a building a community and through that community you're going to learn whether it's like a long-term friend or like a scene partner or someone you end up doing like a sketch group with or something like of that nature or you at least are able to figure out whatever your next step is it's like when you have a job that you hate you look back and you're like well now I know what I don't like on top of what I do like it's just like it, it carries a lot of weight and I think that I think the worst thing a person could do is not try anything whether that's not going to the open mic, not trying to take a class, not doing a virtual, some sort of virtual and like informational session, like things like that. And, and so I feel like it does carry a lot of weight to your point. Um, in terms, this is something that I ask everyone I interview, no matter what their background is. The hot question. Here we go. The hot question. Hot box. A hot, a hot Griggs question is. Hot Griggs question is in terms of performing, teaching, day-to-day life, friends, dating, whatever it is, when was a time that you bombed that like you really, that really stuck with you or that you remember? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I think my story is maybe not necessarily what some people's stories are because I and probably because you remember, like I, I we were talking. I can't remember what we were talking about before the podcast and now, but I, I went to a Southern Baptist college, and so I was, I had a lot of religion in my life. The whole idea of pressure creates a diamond, or the idea of failure creates success. It's very much ingrained, at least in a lot of my church upbringing. You know, you fail, but it's not really failure because it's taking you to another place. So when I, I would bomb my first year or so, and there was this weird thing sometimes where I would not be bummed out about it. I would almost be excited about it. Like, man, I just bombed in a, in a mini mall in Jersey. It'll never be that hard again. That's not so bad. You know, when I, and I, I hung in there for a minute or two, remember that joke? So like, I didn't, I don't know. So I would always kind of look at it as uh, that pressure is just making me stronger. And, and also like, I, yeah, I mean, now if I bombed two or three times in a row, I would get worried. But I mean, generally those occasional bombs, they didn't stick to me like, oh my God. You know, like I had a horrible bomb one time where I was doing stand up on the river at New York right before a 4th of July fireworks celebration. I mean, I just ate it. 
And you know what New York doesn't want to see right before fireworks display? Me talking about my brother who's a vegan. They don't care about that at all. That's not on their menu. So I bombed, <laughs> but I didn't necessarily feel bad about it, you know? And I remember once doing a corporate gig where um, it was at a holiday, their Christmas party. And I'm like, nobody wants to hear stand up at a holiday Christmas event. They want to get drunk and hook up and get in trouble with HR or whatever people do at that thing. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. But I had to do 45 minutes. So I got on a table while nobody was paying attention to me. And I did 45 minutes. And by any degree of anyone watching that, that should have been a horrific, traumatic experience. But it didn't bother me. It's like, I don't know, you paid me money. I did my time. I didn't look at it as me because it had nothing to do with me, to me. So like part of the times I bombed, it's like, this has nothing to do with me. And then other times I bombed where it did have something to do with me, but I felt like I was getting stronger. So my relationship with bombing is not, I've always looked at bombing as part of the art form. If you're never bombing, you're never taking chances. You know, now I, at this point, I shouldn't bomb bomb, but I might bomb for 10 minutes at a stretch because I'm trying a new bit that doesn't, I don't know if it's going to work. Um, but I should always be able to kind of pull myself out of it now, but back then. So the one bomb that it still sticks to, sticks with me to this day is being a Southerner, I had to open, and I, I'm trying to figure out how do I tell this story without being super specific. I had to open for someone that was somewhat of the ilk of, um, you know, like Larry the Cable Guy when there was a moment in South where like people were doing persona-driven characters and they had catchphrases and stuff like that. So I was having to open for someone that it was a, it was a, a woman who'd created a persona around this thing. And, and she was just doing jokes from I'd heard in high school and just, I don't know, I, I was all, it was horrible. I hated it. It was, a, it was a big character thing. And I bombed so bad so bad that it's weird improv is the only thing that even gave me any light where i i started doing some very angry uh crowd work which i typically don't do and i started doing some very ang like i would take the same joke that normally it wasn't an angry angry joke and i was doing it angry and it was a little bit of my version of the bill burr rant at philadelphia I was just ranting at these group of people and then like everything they kind of started to like me after a period of time but I mean, I still, I bombed, man, especially in the beginning. And I, and this is when we were talking about, I didn't want to be angry all the time on stage. I bombed and I didn't like the way I got out of some of it. And that was my worst bomb. It's still to this day, I consider it my worst bomb because I, I felt like I sold out a little bit and just became, I, I don't know. I was just super angry and, and I, then they hated me too. So I'm sure it was a little bit of that. And I genuinely bombed. Like it wasn't like a, I, it, I was at a point in my career where I had an act and I had a skill set, and they just still hated me. And I don't mind that. Cause that happens to me sometimes, you know, you go out and you're like, you're not their thing. I just did a gig in Delaware a few months ago. And in the urinal, they had a Hanoya Jane urinal cake and and they were all wearing American flag shirts. And I'm like, oh, you know what? Maybe I might not be their thing. <laughs> so, you know, I get it. But I don't take those personally. There was something about that particular bomb that I took very personally. Yeah. And you said it best. It's like you, I feel like it's very normal and natural to need to bomb, especially when you're starting out. Even if you've been doing it for like 10, 20, 30 years, like there's going to just be groups of people that aren't for you. There's going to be audiences that might not be for you. And that's like very okay. It's more... It's actually really like a refreshing point of view to hear because like I said, I ask everyone this and some people will tell me like dating stories or a time they did like a stand up, you know, they did like kind of a set that just was not received well, but it's it's actually really refreshing to hear your uh, angle on it and point of view where you kind of used to bomb and be like, great, like that means like I'm learning something, you know what I mean? And there's something coming out of that, even though. I don't think anyone, I don't know if I personally would be like high fiving myself in the back after I bomb, but I'm also just extremely just kind of like neurotic Nancy over here where I would just be like, Oh my God, that was crazy. It was horrible. Instead of just being like, great. Now I know what I want to do next time or what I need to like try to navigate towards or away from in the future. So it is nice to hear that like there to a degree, some people like it's like kind of good to bomb and it, and it, it just, it just helps shape you as a, whether it's a performer, a comic, or just even as a person, to be honest, you know, everybody bombs, you know, and nobody remembers like nobody, this goes back to everybody writes a bad first screenplay. Like nobody remembers if you're, if you were bad 
your first year at stand-up, if you if you put 5, 10, 15 years in, nobody's going back, oh, let me tell you, that first year with Griggs, because nobody cares. You know, so if you're in it for the long haul, you, you take, you know, and everybody, every actor has horrible stories when you start. That's just part of the nature of, of, of stuff. So I think if you're willing to put in the time, you just have to accept the fact. Now, again, again, if it's trending, it's a problem. Like if I, if you not, if I bombed three or four times, it, you know, I was like, wait a minute, something's wrong. But those, those occasional dips, at least my first couple years, I looked at it as a rite of passage. Like, I'm just earning my stripes a little bit. I was just going to, I literally was just going to say, it's basically earning your stripes. And anyone who is successful in any category, not just specific to maybe like entertainment or performing, remembers an interview that they bombed at, like, you know, a, a job, like a meeting that they might have bombed at, things like that. I think it's just, it really shapes you to who you are and you really earn your stripes. Like, there's not, I can't even imagine there's a person out there who's like, nope, never, no, nothing across the board, everything was seamless 100%. Like, that just feels, extremely unrealistic well especially if dating's part of it what if somebody goes i gotta be honest i've always crushed dating i don't know i don't think i've ever bombed on a date i gotta be real i wish i could help you i want to help your podcast but i i i consistently crush it those are like the chads of the world that you you, <laughs> you like wish that you watch you watch them on a date and you're like oh the reason you think you've never bombed is because you're constantly bombing every single time you're on a date ever and we all know comedians that like, I mean, I've done gigs and, we, and any standup has been in a situation where you've done gigs with people that there is a certain math like, oh, you were on stage 12 minutes and no one laughed. And then I've seen people sit next to me and goes, I felt pretty good about that, man. That was pretty good. What'd you think? And I'm not, you know, like that was not even gray. And I, and we all know people like that, where the, I know comics that I've known for a long time and they pretty consistently bomb but there's no awareness of what, which is fascinating because I can understand like, you know, you get a few jokes and then you don't have a few jokes hit, but like that whole thing where people go like extended periods of time and no one laughs and, and the comedian doesn't pick up on it. Uh, that's always fascinating. It's like people being blissfully unaware. Like I I'm overly aware, like I'm too, like I'm, I'm too much with it, but it's, it would be so nice to have that balance of, Someone being like, "Oh yeah, that went great," and and you're like, "Were we ha were we just experiencing two separate realities right now?" Well, you have to have a peer group of people that you trust. You know, you have to have, you have to have a peer group of people that you trust. Uh, you know, and that's all. And even in improv, because a lot of times when people start, they're in the beginning, they're judging others based on how good they are, and if you can't make other people look good on stage, you're not actually as good as you think you are. Yeah. If everybody has to perform a certain way for you to be able to improvise on stage, you haven't, you, you're not quite as evolved as you think you are. Wow. That is very, very well said. That is very, very true. And I think some people just don't see it that way. Next hot question. Oh, we're on a roll. Hot questions. Yeah. That, the, the bombing one was phenomenal. I mean, everything we've talked about has been 10 out of 10, but leading me to actually my Sadly, my last question for the last question. the funny girl slash Griggs collab. What was a piece of advice that has been given to you that stuck with you, or advice in general that you have for aspiring comics or performers or things like that to kind of just keep going or continue the next step? Something that like really helped you? Oh, you know, I had a. I mean, I don't. It's not super profound, but something that was really meaningful at the time was my first year. Uh, there was a comic named Mike Bichetti that uh, is great. He he was on the Artie Lang show for a long time. Very, very funny guy and just a really super sweet human being. And I was at a bar and I asked him for advice, as you know, as as you do when you're starting out. And he said, don't be afraid of the process with stand up. And that always stuck with me because if you, if you don't love the process, you don't really love stand up. And that includes bombing and getting on the road and and dealing with bookers and all the stuff that goes along with it. Cause believe me, you know, buy me a whiskey and I can complain about the business for hours, like most stand up, but I love it. And, and the process is part of it. So I think that was probably the thing that stuck with me. And I also, I had someone and it was in second city uh, that said that I was kind of bummed a little bit cause we were doing a show and he said, and it was funny because they were younger than me, but they were clearly like a Jim Carrey savant type. They're still one of the more talented people I've ever met. And they said that uh, you have a great eye, 
you just haven't you you can't perform to the level of your eye yet but you will because you can see it you see everything and i thought that was something that took me a minute to get my head around because at the time i thought he was I shouldn't that was mean to say but that did I, I did find myself going back to that like it goes back to that whole thing about you know talents a filter your eye how do you hear things and he was really just telling me that i i saw it the way that it would work for me and just to hang in there uh i like all that there's there's yeah and then recently there's been some advice that's really been sticking with me um jane lynch was on a podcast and they were talking about her being such a good actor and improvising on camera. And that's kind of been my latest obsession the last few years is like getting better at doing that. And she said, improvise through a tiny box. And I'm like, mm, that's like making a choice. That's pretty cool. I like the way she said that. I don't know. So those are the things that probably stuck with me as far as advice. Oh, and my advice, because someone asked me on a podcast this because I teach and this has been, I said this like 10 years ago, but I still go back to it. And I think sometimes students are surprised because if you studied with me, I don't even talk about it that much. Like you and I have talked about bombing, but I don't really talk about it that much when I teach people anything. But I said the thing that I think people, especially at least improvisers, is don't be afraid to fail. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's my advice to people. Don't be afraid to fail because you're going to fail anyway. So there's really no point um, obsessing over it. And you obsessing over it's only going to increase the likelihood of you failing. Yeah. So, it doesn't really change anything. And I know it's easy to say, but that's the advice, you know. I just got three for the price of one, to be honest. All of these things I'm just going to replay. On my, I'm also going to pretend and convince myself that you thought that I was really good when you taught me five years ago. Because if you have a really good eye for talent and like because you are talented. I will tell you that. I have no, I never remember what I sometimes, I never, I never remember what I say to people with very few exceptions. But, oh, because, you know, going back to remember when I said I was in a movie that Matt Walsh was in, I had just been in a class with him and I had just been in a sketch show that he directed. And this was maybe a month or two later. I'm on set with him. He does not know who I am. <laughs> and I was like, what? Come on, man. But I look back now and I get it. It becomes overwhelming, you know, because there's too many people in too many situations. And I remember all my teachers, but I mean, you can't remember everybody. But one thing I do know about me is I have a vocabulary. And if I say to people like, you know, you should really pursue this. Or if I say to people, you know, you're really talented or you're really good. It always comes from, I really believe that. I, there are ways to say, I'm really proud of you for facing your fears. There's lots of different language cues. It's like when people go see you in a play and they're, they're like, hey, it seemed like you know you had fun up there or whatever. But there's always a real authentic, and actually that's not even a good example because you're having fun up there is just a way of saying it's not good. I think there's always something good that people are doing that you can connect to in an authentic way. But if I tell people they're good or if they have a penchant for it, um, then I'm being honest. Because I, I love stand-up but I would not wish it on anybody. You know, like it's that thing in the Marvelous Miss Maisel premiere where Lenny Bruce says, if you can see yourself doing something else, do that. Yeah. So I've had, I've had friends where I'm like, you don't love the process of this or want this enough. Why would you want to put yourself through this pain? Because I don't think this is something you really, really want to do. And I think to really get good at stand-up, you are going to have to put in the work. Yeah. There's no way around it. I mean, you know, social media sensations can get so far, but ultimately you're going to have to be on stage for a half hour or an hour or whatever it is. And you're going to have the work has got to be done or yeah. it's not going to play. Yeah. And I think that that's like what the, you know, every few years it's, it's kind of ever changing. But I mm -hmm. think as long as you kind of are very true to like your voice and your and I don't want to say niche, but you know, like the way that you approach things that might be different to other performers or comedians is really what matters. And like, that was what was so funny about when I was taking the class with you, because I remember like the one thing you were kind of saying, like you said it to me a few times, cause I'd always talk to you after class. Granted, I was like extremely depressed also. And just kind of like, <laughs> my life is stuck. But you were like, you, you were, you're very like, I could just tell you care, you care about all your students. You know what I mean? And it's just like, it's the equivalent of like working at a restaurant and like a million different people being like, you served me a few months ago. You're like, I don't fucking remember you, but obviously you remember me, you know? <laughs> but I just remember you saying to me, like, 
point blank, you were kind of just like, you're getting in your own way. You know what I mean? Like, and I think like, again, that really stuck with me because it was like, I had that potential to just like let loose and be a really good part scene partner and things like that. But I wasn't letting myself get there because I was letting the overthinking, the trying to like direct a scene, the trying to be in control were coming out so much stronger than my ability to just be a really good partner or, or do really well in the moments. And like, I felt myself sucking. And then like, it was never a point of view of you saying like, don't do this. It was more just like, here, here are the tools that you can use to try to make, like get to your next level if you want to, because I'll never forget there was one and like, I'll kind of end on this, but I remember there was one exercise that we did that like I tell my friends about all the time because it was like so fucking embarrassing. But again, luckily you don't remember. Yeah. And, and I'm like, luckily you don't remember and everyone else doesn't remember. But there was a situation where you would have us do, I don't know what the name of it was, but you'd have us do something where we're all standing in a group and someone would be like, I'm riding my bike. And then everyone starts pretending to ride their bike. And then you say like, oh, like I'm sewing a blanket. And then people like pretend to start sewing a blanket. And then every person would like say what the thing is and start acting it out. I don't know like what came over me, but we'd go around the room once and everyone's like, oh, like I'm surfing, like I'm petting my dog. (laughs) And I go, I go, I'm crying. And so everyone starts like crying, like fake crying. And they're kind of like, okay, cool. And then it goes around the room again. And people are like, like, I'm in the, I'm walking in the mall. I'm cutting hair. And again, it gets back to me and you like point to me and I'm like, I'm crying. And I said it four (laughs) times. And I, and you literally at the end of the class pulled me and you're like, I just want to like check in. Like, are you okay? And I was like, oh, so man, if you ever write a movie about your life, that has to be in that movie. Yes. That's so funny. I forgot about that. that Cause it was just like the most, like, it's like improv supposed to like help you with your mental health, like take you away from it all, like whatever. And I'm just sitting here like fucking depressed as shit. And everyone's like, is she good? And I just remember you being like, Hey, like I normally don't like check in, but like, is everything okay? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. That's the only thing my brain could say. Like I couldn't think of like watching TV, drinking Coke, like whatever. I just started crying like three times and everyone in the class was like, she fucking like was unhinged. And I just, yeah, I had to leave it on that note because again, I, I know like obviously you made such a big impact on me and I'm trying to get back into taking classes. Like I have an audition next week for um, groundlings to kind of like jump ahead and take classes and stuff. And I'm doing that just because I've done enough improv that, and also don't want to spend on money that I'm trying to like jump ahead and kind of do like the core track program. But even if, if that doesn't work out, like regardless, I really wanted to do UCB stuff. And I think the pit just has a place in my heart. So I'm excited. And then the timing that we were able to do the interview because Obviously, all the like this whole episode is just rich with advice and stories and experiences that'll help me and other people listening that are kind of aspiring to do it or have been doing it. So yeah, I'm excited to see where like things go. And I cannot thank you enough for coming on the podcast. You are the best, and I appreciate you very much. And anybody that hears this, we can be social. You know, it's ChrisGriggsComedy.com or at ChrisGriggsComedy on Instagram. We can be little social media people. If you want to slide into, yeah, slide into my DMs or Chris's DMs. But if you go to the bio of this episode, you'll see all the links to Chris's websites. If you guys are in New York and want to take some courses, he has all of his courses on his website. And if you have any questions, he's he's pretty good to answer on DMs as well. So please yeah. be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And that's my little spiel for Funny Girl Podcast. Cool. Thank you so much for having me on there. You have fun. Don't you cry after I leave. (laughs) Bye. Bye.